brought to you by Penguin. Ho, 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 I'm Nihal Arthanaika and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. The days are getting colder, the nights are setting in, and I'm making terrible Santa puns. It can only mean one thing. It's time to relax, crack open the mince pies and pour yourself your winter drink of choice as we take a look back over the last year in the Penguin Podcast. We've had a great year of guests and it's been really hard to choose just a few for these end-of-year compilations. But the good thing is, all the episodes are still there for you to dip back into. So if you've missed one, scroll back and jump in. There's a lot of good stuff in there. We started 2022 with Costa Novel of the Year winner Claire Fuller, with a lyrical novel that riffs on resilience and hope. Izzy Sutty was awed by Michael Rosen's memories from the front line of COVID-19 in a beautiful book exploring what it was like to be treated in intensive care at the height of the pandemic. Derek Awusu met Alison Hammond and chatted about finding out about forgotten black people who made history with an interesting detour about a Terry's chocolate orange. Sinead Moriarty, now a best-selling author of more than 13 novels, popped in to talk about the evening classes that started her whole journey. And we even found time to hook up with Booker Prize winner Damon Galgett at the Hay Festival for a fascinating conversation about his work and how he makes sense of modern South Africa. So put your feet up and relax as we dip into the present sack for some highlights from the Penguin podcast. In January, novelist Claire Fuller won the Costa Novel of the Year Award for her beautiful book Unsettled Ground. It's a story about rural poverty, the strength of family and the triumph of hope and was partly inspired by a derelict caravan Claire saw on her daily walk. But as Claire and I chatted, it brought up memories of another caravan in a very different time. Is this who you've always been? If we were to meet you as a child... Would you walk past something and where someone may just see something that perhaps is innocuous to them, you would see something else? It's hard to say, isn't it? Because all I know is my own experience. But I think I've always been curious about those places. You know, I would explore abandoned places without worrying about that or out of curiosity. I think I am especially drawn to places that humans are left behind. So places where humans have lived and have now abandoned it. It is quite fashionable at the moment, somehow, those those abandoned places. And there are lots of um, websites about them and lots of people photograph them. But I think I've always been quite curious about them and have always made up stories in my head about those places, even as a child. Why? Um, because I... What I'm interested in, I think, is what happens to places that humans have been in after the humans have gone and how humans manage in places that aren't easy to live in. Maybe it is about creating stories because I've never had to live in a place like that, really. Although I did live six months in a caravan when I was six and that experience has really stuck with me. 
but it wasn't an abandoned caravan. It wasn't, we didn't live there out of any deprivation. My family was building a house and we lived in this caravan on site. So that experience has really stuck with me. Being six and living in a caravan, presumably it felt like a bit of an adventure, did it? Or did it feel rather squalid? More squalid, I think, than an adventure. The adventurous thing was the building site that the caravan was next to and that this was in the 70s and there wasn't no one thought about health and safety. And at six, I was allowed to run around the foundations and they were up to my head height, the foundations, and it was just like this maze. And we climbed on the bricks and we climbed up the ladders and we just ran around this place like it was our own adventure playground but the actual living in the caravan for six months it was over winter what I really remember is the cold so so cold and no bathroom an outside loo in a shed that my dad had to empty the bucket and he emptied it in a hole that he'd dug in the ground which was covered over with a piece of um, a corrugated iron what I really remember was my Australian cousin coming to stay and us, me and my sister, daring him to walk across the corrugated iron over this pit in the ground where everything was emptied into and he fell in. (laughs) (laughs) He fell in and then he left his boots under the caravan. This is like one of those family stories that every family's, (laughs) every family has. Um, They were obviously very smelly boots. 2022 felt like a new beginning to many of us, coming out of the restrictions and difficulties of living through the pandemic. Izzy Sutty went to meet Michael Rosen, who has written beautifully about his own new beginning in his latest book, Many Different Kinds of Love. After spending part of 2020 in an induced coma at the Whittington Hospital, having been affected with COVID-19 very near the start of the pandemic, he felt that writing had helped him process the experience. There were times when I came home and I was feeling very fragile and I think probably with quite a lot of the drug still in me. I mean, that's all a bit of a mystery, but it's quite clear that when we come off of something like intensive care, you are very fragile. And so if I contemplated any of this stuff, I did well up. I I, I wasn't able to cope. I mean, now it, it feels like well, there's a, an idea, isn't there, in stories that stories are a way of laughing at death, that you kind of put death away for a bit while you read the story and get engaged with it. And in a way, it's sort of getting your own back or getting one up on death. So I, I guess that's how I feel about it now. I mean, it's, it's already, thankfully, become a, a bit of a time ago. So, I, you know, I first got ill in March 2020. And so I can see a sort of Grim cackling, I think. Ha, 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 I nearly died, but I didn't. Ha, ha, ha. So it's it's a different feeling now. But if you were talking to me in July 2020, you'd go, oh, he's in a bit of a rough way, isn't he? Uh, have a hanky, Michael. So it, it has changed. And do you think writing the book has helped you to accept I suppose what what happened like would you recommend it to someone who'd been through a similar thing hey if you write it down it might help you to process the fact that life is uncertain and these things can just happen yes for me writing is actually a way of having a conversation with yourself 
that if you write down things in a way that are truthful to the moment that is bothering you. Now, the technique is, I shouldn't really call it a technique, but the way that I do it is I see myself as unfolding something that happened, but doing it as if it's happening now. So I say, a nurse comes to my bedside. So I put it in the present, she comes to my bedside, and then I don't worry about whether it makes sense in the way prose makes sense, with full of becauses and moreovers and notwithstandings and all that sort of stuff. It can be very brief, and sometimes it doesn't have to have whole sentences. So it, it can just be little fragments. And when I get to the end of one fragment, then I just start a new line. And I'd recommend that to everybody because it's very, very simple once you get there and you don't have to be burdened by the kind of things we were told at school, that you had to write a sentence with a finite verb and that if you put in a subordinate clause, then this was good style. And uh, if you put the subordinate clause before the main clause, all that stuff, you know, we get burdened by this and it gets in the way of you writing so that it feels like it felt. And if you want to deal with difficult stuff, then you do have to have a conversation with yourself about how it felt. One way is obviously to see somebody and talk to them. But the blank piece of paper is a good friend. It doesn't answer you back. It doesn't mock you. It doesn't get angry with you. You can write anything on it and you're the only judge of it. It's an amazing book. And if you haven't read it, do get hold of a copy. It's very funny as well as being poignant. And the conversation with Michael really reflects that. Here's Michael on the surreal experience of coming out of an induced coma. In the terms that the medics told me was that my brain had been stuffed full of mind-changing drugs. That was the phrase they used. I remember lying in bed thinking, really? Has my mind been changed? What did they give me? You know, because they didn't actually tell me the names of what it was that they'd fed me. And they did warn me that I would uh, hallucinate and become delirious and have very painful and difficult dreams and maybe even get paranoid and want to be quite violent because some of the people who come off intensive care, they are like that. But I kept having these kind of wild sort of hippie yellow submarine type dreams. You know, one of them which I've written about is this German Christmas party. You know, I mean, it, I mean, how weird. I mean, I've, I don't know, I've never been to a German Christmas party as such. And there I was sitting out of doors in the garden with a big blanket round my legs, knowing that I couldn't move. And German folks came out to me saying, in Germany, we eat Wasbieren, totally made up word. So it's great. My dream made this up. And what we do, he said, is we throw the berries into the air and when they, they'll explode and then we sing. And so we throw them into the air and they go, Pew! and I saw these berries beautifully exploding against the night sky. And then Everybody's sitting round going, Stille Nacht, Heiliger, pew, pew, like this. And, um, but it's actually great. So what it's now, I mean, I do these shows for children and obviously people, they do want to slightly touch on this but not do it in a way that scares children. So I started telling them and I get them all to join in while we all go, pew, pew, Stille Nacht. So anyway, they learn three German words, Stille Heiliger Nacht. So, uh, yeah, quite weird, but also a word that isn't a word, Vaspian. Is it important to you now to understand how a ventilator works, to make sense of what happened to you, or do you concentrate more on the psychological implications of what happened? I personally find it really helpful 
to know and try and understand as much of the science as I can. I hit the ceiling every now and then, well, quite often, when they start talking about metabolic rates or stuff like that. But I find it very helpful. So earlier I was talking to one of the nurses who was looking after me and I was saying, well, what was the drug that you gave me and what, what, what does that do? And, and I wanted to know. You know, I, d I don't like the idea that there's a sort of mystical quality about it because it isn't. It isn't. They're, what they're doing is working off science. Now, I can accept that there's some of the science I, I don't understand, but if I can understand it, and as I say, this this actually applied also to the death of my son. When they came to me and said, he's died of meningitis, he's died of meningococcal septicemia, I wanted to know what all those words meant. If they, I didn't want it to be a spooky word, meningitis, you know, like a like Godzilla or something. I wanted to know what meningitis is. Is it a virus or is it a bacterium? Which is it? And then where, how do we get it? And then if they say it was septicemia, well, how did it get from there to there? Some people would just really not want to know that. But in my case, I do. And one of the ways it helps me is that it makes me feel part of the human race, that if it was a bacterium that killed my son, then that's a bacterium that we as a human race live with. If it's a virus, COVID is a virus, and that we live with it, and I was saved by this process, then I feel part of what medical science has done to save people who are in an emergency and need this kind of help. So I don't feel like this single, isolated, me, ego, I, myself, person. I'm part of a whole society, or indeed the whole human race, that's got to this point. So I find that very comforting. I can understand other people might not like that, but for me, it, it really helps, yeah. There's a bit where you talk about the virus as a wicked hedgehog, <laughs> and there's a brilliant um, picture of it as well. And I really identified with that bit because at one point in the pandemic, I was just so angry with COVID as if COVID was this evil entity that wanted to cause us harm. And I think that's probably quite a natural reaction, isn't it? As we try to make sense of why our lives are being changed so much, let alone if you're as ill as you were. How do you make sense of COVID itself now? I, I think I'm somebody who can quite easily sit with two things quite different, but parallel in my mind, that on the one hand, it is these things that medical textbooks describe and this weird thing of a virus being halfway between life and inanimate object but somehow can reproduce itself or has to have a host in order to do it all, all these things they write about viruses and i'll read about that and at the same time that we can create mythological creatures because mythological creatures when we've made them dragons or whatever they might be they're to deal with our fears i mean it's very clear from say the great old english epic poem beowulf there they were these folks sitting in their mead halls scared out of their pants by the night and noises and well, they would scare each other because they could kill each other with axes and all the rest of it. And they created this this monster out there called Grendel, an even bigger monster at the bottom of a pond called Grendel's mother. And in a way, it's fear itself. And they've created this myth. Well, I, I quite like the idea that on the one hand, you can sit there very rationally and read about what a virus is and how COVID is a branch of the SARS and all this sort of stuff. And on the other hand, what is it? It's Well, it is. It's a wicked hedgehog. Look at it. You can see the picture of it. It's uh, under the electron microscope. It's this sort of sphere with all these little sticky things coming out of it. And it is wicked because, you know, it's doing these naughty things. But then, of course, you have to slap yourself. Here's me slapping myself. Um, you anthropomorphise it and it helps. 
I, it's difficult to say why, but there, there must be in the whole history of phantomology, this is what we do. We make phantoms and spectres out of the things that bother us. And then it becomes a bit funny for half a second. Wicked Hedgehog. It's sort of a, another way to deal with it. So I find these two things can coexist quite happily, even though the one thing in theory is um, the destruction of the other. You know, science destroys mythology and mythology uh, ruins science. So I'm quite happy to live with both. Truly one of our national treasures. And from one national treasure to another. In June, Derek Wusu met up with loose woman Alison Hammond. That's a TV show, by the way, that she's a part of. To talk about her new book, Black in History, which highlights forgotten figures like Septimus Severus, an African-born emperor of Rome, and Pablo Fank, the black owner of a renowned Victorian circus. But first, she turned the tables on Derek with a question of her own. So on the Penguin Podcast, we always ask our guests to bring items that have inspired them, you know. Um, so why do you they, do that then? Why do you do this? I guess it just makes the, the interview a lot more interesting, you know. Okay. It, it gives you a deeper insight into I love it. the writer's mind, do you know what I mean? I love um, it. So, I love when you call me a writer. You are, right? <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> I, I'm going to be honest, I had a lot of help with this book. I am a writer, but... I'm more like an editor writer. We all, I mean, I'm a writer myself, but could I do it without my editor? Absolutely <laughs> not. It, it's always a joint effort. Yeah. Putting a book together, yeah. always. So, of course, you're a writer. Okay, fine. I'll accept the own it, title. Own it, yeah. I'm going to own it. <laughs> yes. Yes, Derek. Yes. So, um, yes. Yeah, so, your, your first item is something that changed you. Yes. Now, what is that? Did I go for a chocolate orange? Terry's chocolate orange. <laughs> <laughs> but you're thinking, why did that change? You? I'm interested to hear the story. The first person to give me a Terry's chocolate orange was my father. My father was just such a weird character in the sense of he would rock up. He wasn't in my life at all. He, he lived in Jamaica and then he'd come over here and there, sporadic. Just really wasn't there for me. But I remember, I just remember chocolate orange because he's the first one who gave me chocolate orange. So if I taste it straight away instantly, I think about my dad. But it's just the fact that he literally would rock up and pretend like we were a normal family. So I hadn't seen him for like years on end. But he'd continue to like go, oh, my baby, I've missed you so much. And like, as if we were just like a normal family. There was no like acknowledgement to the fact that he'd never been there for me or anything. And he used to be like that throughout all my life. So I don't know what it is. With the Terry's chocolate orange, I think of my, not necessarily sad past, but I think of a past where I think about my father a lot. I lost my dad in 2020. Oh, and it's, and no, it's life, isn't it? This is what happens. We, we live, we die. And... You know, it was the first time I'd ever cried about my dad. Yet he wasn't there in my life because I suppose it was just the ending, the fact that, that I'd never been able to address mm. how he'd behaved in my life and I really wanted to address it to him. But really and truly, it didn't really matter because ultimately he was just the dad that he could be. So were you crying for the loss in the it, moment or the loss so, of a father throughout your life? Because I'd lost my mum in the same year as well. So I'd become an orphan. I think it was just the whole... Everything was just on top of me. I think I'd lost my mom, I'd lost my dad. I felt like I had no roots. I was tied to nothing. It was just a, a moment where I just felt lost. That mm. was the first time when I lost both my mom and dad. I felt a little bit, oh, I'm here on my own. Mm. And when you now go for like go for a Terry's chocolate, I think orange, about my dad. You think about away. your dad yeah, straight, straight away, yeah. and I think about bad memories. So I try and stay away from it. So it is an item. Oh, where, interesting. It, okay. Yeah, well, I love it. I'm not yeah. going to lie. <laughs> if you tap and unwrap, I'm going to go for it. But yeah, it does remind me of my dad. He always, 
comes in. So I would prefer to stay away from it and have a bounty instead. (laughs) (laughs) It's always fascinating when the conversation gets onto the process of writing. And Sinead Moriarty may have sold a million books, but she was keen to take us back right to the beginning of her writing journey. Fast forward to me, I'm living in London, I'm working as a journalist, but I'm writing for a marketing magazine and I actually think I'm going to lose the will to live if I don't do something more creative. So I joined this very standard random writing course in Maida Vale College and I go after work every Tuesday and it just becomes this kind of obsession. I'm writing in every single spare moment I have and as I said, my first two books failed miserably to get published. Uh, I spent more money on stamps than food and I was rejected, rejected, rejected. And then there came a moment where you kind of go, okay, like, am I doing this for the glory of being published or am I doing this because I love it? And I went, okay, this may never happen for me. It's not looking too good at the moment. But I really love writing. I really love expressing myself creatively. So the tutor in the course was really encouraging to me. And then, you know, life gave me my idea because I was sitting in the fertility clinic in London and looked around and all these women were looking equally despondent. And I thought, I'm going to write about this because this is not fun. And if I can make it funny and if I can be really honest, and that's the thing about my books, I try and make them really honest and raw. But again, with humour, I said, maybe people will relate to it. And that was The Baby Trail. And that was my first book to be published. And I always used to think back to Jo going, oh, you know, Jo stuck at it. She stuck in her heels and kept going. And so it's funny how a book that I read so long ago did stick with me. It's powerful. Yeah. And when you joined the group, I suppose you weren't necessarily thinking this is going to enable me to get published. No. It wasn't just the group that did that anyway, but would probably help to have that meeting to go to every week and yeah get also, I was very private I didn't want to show my writing to anybody and god we were a mixed bag there was a retired copper and he used to go to me look love this isn't really my bag I'm going to be honest with you he goes but I'm always really interested to know what happens next and I thought okay well that's encouraging uh he was obviously writing a police procedural novel and um and the tutor encouraged me and it's like finding your tribe I found my tribe everyone there had the same wishes and dreams and hopes and when the course ended there was five of us who were just, you, you can spot kindred spirits who were just really not going to give up. And we used to meet every Tuesday in a pub and then we'd read each other our, our chapters or one of the guys was writing a play. And what was interesting was that was the first time I really realised there was a guy from the Northern Ireland who was in our group and he was by far the most talented. I mean, he was standout. He, he was writing a play. It was just an absolute knockout. But he was an engineer by day and he wasn't really that bothered. He was writing because he kind of enjoyed it. And I kept saying to him, you have to finish the play, you have to finish the play. Anyway, we lost touch and I always wondered, did he ever finish the play? But it made me realise that as well as having obviously a level of talent, you also need hard work, tenacity, determination and not to give up, you know? Yeah, it's just like that with stand-up. Like, especially at the beginning, I've been doing it for 20 years, you see people who are so funny in this kind of raw, feral way, but they just kind of drop off the circuit after a couple of years, and it's almost like they burnt themselves out or something. They just never wanted to go to Slough for a tenner and go (laughs) to St Andrews and be out of pocket, go to a uni gig in front of like, I don't know, sometimes no one turning up and you're doing it to the other comics. And um, I sort of look back on those days with rose-tinted glass, but I know exactly what you mean. I sometimes almost think that the hard work is slightly more important than the talent. You know, it's equally as important. It really is. I really noticed that. I really have. And I remember I, I wrote a column for years for the Irish Independent. And I remember I had many different editors, actually. And one of them said to me, look, you always deliver on time. 
And that's half the battle, to be honest with you. You know, and so I do think that. And listen, I, as, as you've done comedy to nobody, I've done talks to Joe, the security guard and the librarian. And, you know, it's a bit sort of, you know, yeah. humiliating, but you kind of go, oh, what the hell, you know. But again, when you look back, it's funny, isn't it? It's funny, exactly. And, and I, I always think, when I'm in a situation, I always think, this is going to be a funny story. Yeah, me yeah. too. Even with breakups, I mean, this sounds awful, but with breakups, I used to think, I'll be able to use this one day, which is terrible. Well, it's funny because my editor always goes, it's material. Everything is material. I go, okay, 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 yeah, fair enough. It's <laughs> so true. Perseverance, sticking with it. It's a topic that comes up again and again in this podcast, and it's always good to hear people talking about how they got started. Inspiring stuff. In May, the podcast had a little field trip out to the Hay Festival, where I met up with Booker Prize winning author Damon Galgut. One thing I also noticed when I was in Cape Town was a sense that if you give equality as a gift, then there's still a feeling that I've done you a favour. So somehow you owe me for the equality that I've given you. And in that is an inherent superiority still that I felt from people. So when they were not being polite to black people or nice to black people, it was as a favour almost. Um, you may be sensitive to, you know, uh, particular undercurrents that, that wouldn't strike most South Africans. I mean, that's definitely true of, of certain people. And a refrain you, you used to hear from um, certain incredibly resentful white people, resentful about the transformation that had taken place, was go ask Mandela for that. You know, what, whatever you might ask, whether it be for money or a job, go ask Mandela for that. In other words, we, you know, we've given you everything we're, we're going to give you and the, and the rest is up to your people to sort out. So, yeah, there's a, there's a particular white South African harshness and unkindness in, in that which you, you may not hear anywhere else. Um, but even when they think they're being kind, yeah. that's the thing. It was this kind of charitable benevolence. Well, you know, well, you, you, you're coming from a, um, a racist system that prioritised white people above all else and that taught white people to believe that they were innately superior. So if you um, approach racial matters or, or rather matters of equality from with that viewpoint, you probably believe that you're dispensing, you know, a favour to people. If I treat you equally, it's because I choose to do it and here you are, I'm being gracious to you, rather than the very simple truth that all of us are equal, we're all human beings. Uh, but that's a truth that uh, still eludes a lot of my brethren, I'm afraid. How do you absolve yourself of that, that superiority? Well, absolve, um, I don't know that any of us are uh, absolved of the past, to be honest, um, especially not the past I come from. We find ways to try to do it. I mean, one, one of the questions that I've consciously tried to work with in the book is, the quest of Amor, the youngest daughter in the family, who feels very ill at ease with her power and her privilege, but doesn't know what to do about that uneasiness. I mean, if you want to give up your race or your class, there's no way you can go and check those things in and get new ones, you know? So what do you do? You're, you're born as a middle-class white person like me. That might make you terribly uncomfortable because of the position of power it puts you into. But how, how do you change that? I mean, a more solution, I think, in the book is heartfelt and inadequate. She, she basically 
renounces her inheritance and sets herself apart from her family and then works in multiple ways for her whole life using herself up in the process uh, to try to repair some of the damage of the world and and that damage isn't all due to apartheid i mean there's there's damage that comes about in multiple ways so I don't have an answer for you, and uh, I suspect that you cannot be absolved of the place that history bestows on you. You can only choose to live out the role kindly or unkindly. You can renounce certain things, and renouncing inheritance is certainly a significant thing to do. But you are ultimately still who you are and who the past has made you. So to whatever degree, the oppressors of the past will carry a lifelong guilt, I think, if they choose to feel it. I remember interviewing a gay man once who said to me that, he said, don't expect me to be grateful that you gave me gay marriage. I should have had that anyway. It's certainly a viewpoint. But you know, what's obviously... It was within the context of progress. And he I, said to I me... I understand, but what, the, the question that comes to my mind when I hear that is the specificity of that you because you are obviously not responsible no. a system is responsible no. and that's kind of true for for most injustice i mean of course there are personal injustices but that's not the sort of story i've told here the injustice of a system is ultimately one that everyone's complicit in every everyone on the superior side of that system whether you want to be or not you're you're complicit so yeah i suppose in that sense you could make a statement like that but on the other hand you didn't have that expectation of him that he should be grateful to you yet i understand his feeling you know Th that's the thing about a system it, it can be broad and general and directed at a group but there is a level on which at the receiving end of that system there are individuals and individual lives that are destroyed and and you know the questions those lives might ask are not always easy to answer did it sadden you to write a book such as this, and it spans four decades, knowing that, that Salome still exists? This is not a historical look back at a South Africa that once existed. Or in, it, actually, it is in the early stages of it. But to end it knowing that this is a South Africa that still exists and Salome still live amongst you. It saddens me, but it also angers me. Why has that situation not transformed more? You know, because life has changed for quite a few black South Africans. They're not in the same position. Uh, it is possible in a, you know, if, if you look just at the statute books, to make your way if you have the right resources and opportunities. A lot of people have become rich who were never rich before. So there is some upward migration class-wise. But the fact is that for millions and millions of South Africans, nothing has changed. And Salome is one such. She is probably not a highly educated person, probably from a rural background. And one of the impediments for her of changing the system is that she doesn't even understand how the system works. So in every way, everything is stacked against her. So yeah, I mean, part of, part of my anger, part of the motivation for writing the book was the feeling, the knowledge that, you know, the, the silence and the lack of agency of somebody like Salome was true under apartheid, and it's equally true now. I hope we get to go to Hay again next year. But that's it for this episode. Join me next time for more highlights from 2022, when we'll hear from Jarvis Cocker on why traffic cones were so key to the formation of pulp. Can't wait to hear that story. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. 
See you next time.